1: The sermon you're hearing today is by James Keaton. It was preached in 1990 at the annual Interchurch Holiness Convention in Dayton, Ohio. He titles this sermon, The Problem with Sin. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message. Keep passing it
0: on keep passing it on, and on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on.
1: Each time that I've been asked to speak at this convention, I've always spent a little time wondering why didn't they get one of the professionals to do it. And uh, then the other day, I saw a little sign that helps me feel a little better about it. A little sign said, uh, the Ark was built by amateurs and the Titanic was built by professionals. They gave me two things to equip me for this service tonight. One was a topic, and the other was the privilege of preaching. They said, uh, that's what we want you to do is preach, and that thrilled me. I would have been very uncomfortable if they would, would have wanted a theological lecture. I would have not been very comfortable if they would have wanted some philosophical dissertation, but when they said, we want you to preach, I felt a little more at home. I only trust that God will help us. The subject they gave me for the evening is the problem of sin. Now, I suppose when you go to the IH convention, you normally expect to hear something other than a message on sin, sort of like preaching to the choir. Uh, Seems that everybody here has a good case of old-time religion, at least it looks like it anyway. But nonetheless, I am confident that they who plan these services know best. And then as I began to pray and prepare, I found that the Lord was there to bless my heart in that effort. So we shall proceed. I would like to read from the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 1 this familiar passage. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, And a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Adam, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Let us pray. Now, Father, tonight I pray that behind this podium you would give special anointing for preaching and that throughout this assemblage you would give special anointing for hearing. And Father, may thy will be done perfectly as you know it should be done. I pray that you would bless every saint that is here and that is blessable. I pray that you would convict any sinner that is here with pungent conviction. May God be glorified, may the church be edified, and may seekers be satisfied this night We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. To discuss the problem of sin, perhaps I have begun at a good starting point. We live in a day when the opinion of sin has changed and is seemingly in continual evolution. Someone has said, our problem today is not getting people saved, But rather our problem is getting them lost. Getting them to acknowledge that sin is still sinful. And that sin still separates us from God. And that sin is more than just a figment of weak minds or the tool of some organized religion that they might levy guilt upon their followers and control them thereby. But sin is something far more than that. Sin is that alienation from God, and sin is that doing against the will of God. You began reading in the Bible, and you only go three chapters into the blessed old book until you discover the serpent makes his appearance. And you have to read through the entire Bible until you are only three chapters away from the closing of the book until you find that he is dealt with in a final fashion. Talking about the problem of sin tonight, certainly there are many things that runs through your mind. We live in a world that's in which we are surrounded by sin. Probably everybody here who drove has your car securely locked. Every woman here would not think of going far here without holding tightly onto your purse. If you have little children, you want to keep them in sight when you're out in the city. All of this because sin is rampant and it's around us on every hand. Cannot get away from it. Even going to an IH convention, you can't get away from it. Sin is everywhere. Somewhere in this congregation, there is someone whose heart is broken because of sin and what it is doing to someone whom you dearly love. And it's all you can do as you're seated here tonight to keep the tears back and enjoy this great meeting that we're in. It's all you can do to invest yourself into it because your heart is broken because of sin. I believe that the problem of sin should first be viewed in the light of the curse of sin. Of the curse of sin. We learn about the problem of sin by reading the Bible. We learn about the problem of sin by observing around us and we learn about the problem of sin by a nagging experience that each son and daughter of Adam's race has had somewhere of the sin problem in our own heart and life. In the Bible we learn that sin, sin came in in the garden as we were discussing here in the passage that I have read. And contrary to popular idea, man is not on his way up. He is a creature who has suffered a devastating fall. His basic nature is not good, but it is evil. He is disoriented by his sin. Now when the serpent came to Eve in the garden, sin and sin entered in through the doorway of doubt. It proceeded down the avenue of denial and its final destination was destruction. When Eve doubted, she doubted God. I noticed that first of all, as Satan was speaking to her, she doubted the authorship of God's word. You know, she didn't have God's word uh, as we have it. She had it in a rather abbreviated fashion, but she had enough of God's word to be able to say, but God said, and that was all that she needed. If she would abide by the word of God that she had at that time, she would have done perfectly well. But when she began to doubt, first of all, she doubted the authorship of God's word. Secondly, she doubted the authority of God's word. And then she doubted the acceptability of God's word. She doubted the authorship when she was asked and doubted, did God really say that? Was it God that really said that? Is he the true author? She doubted the authority of God's word when he began to be selective. You can partake of these trees, but of this one you cannot. And then when she looked upon the forbidden fruit and saw that she had a desire for it, that it was good to look upon, suddenly she doubted the acceptability of God's word. Is it acceptable for me? After all, I have my own desires. I have my own life to live. Maybe it isn't acceptable for me to fall into this guideline that has been handed down from someone else. And I want you to notice that that those problems are much the same in our day. But she doubted God through those three areas and sin entered into the world. But as sin entered into the world, God also made his great appearance. I do not know exactly how it must have been, only what the Bible tells me. But can you imagine how it was in that day that Adam was placed in the garden? He walked through the beautiful garden that was before him The sun warmed his bare shoulders. Everything was perfect. The birds would sing. The trees were bearing their fruit. The flowers were in full bloom. The aroma must have been like under heaven itself uh, from all of the flowering fruit trees and all of the flowers that were there. And yet when the time came that uh, the evening shadows began to fall and a chill settled upon his bare shoulders, uh, God was there to walk with him in the cool of the day so that he would not experience that horrible thing called fear. But now we find that he has sinned and that fear rushes to his heart day or night. The fear has come and they observe that they are naked and they sew fig leaves together and cover themselves. And now God comes again, the same God that has dispelled their fear in times past. This same God makes his entrance and they fear all the more because they have now sinned. And when God entered in, first of all, God summoned Adam and then God searched Adam and then God sentenced Adam. He summoned him when he said, Adam, where art thou? And Adam had to come from his hiding and make his way, stand before Almighty God, his creator, and present himself there. And then God searched Adam by saying, who told you that you were naked? And then God sentenced Adam. In the sentences of Adam this curse of sin came upon us and God declared war on the serpent. He declared woe on the woman and he declared work Upon man, and when he declared war on the serpent that day, in that beautiful passage of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first messianic promise that was ever given, and also mankind heard their first gospel message, the first promise of hope. For he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and thou shalt bruise, he he shall bruise thy head. but thou shalt bruise his heel and he made the prophecies of the two comings of Jesus Christ and he rushed all the way to the second one first and he said he shall bruise thy head he shall have a final day a final say when you shall be forever bound and cast into the bottomless pit and you shall bruise his heel and now he speaks of the coming of Christ as a babe in a manger all the way to Calvary where the heel of Christ was bruised but I happy to tell you, if I have to choose sides, uh, I want to be on the side that's going to be bruising the head, not on the side that's going to be bruising the heel. But every time one chooses to live in their sin and follow the curse of sin that is upon man, he chooses uh, on the side of the one whose head shall be bruised uh, rather than on the side of the one whose heel shall receive the blow. He pronounced woe upon the woman And she would bear her children in sorrow he pronounced work on the man and through that man had to learn of of hard labor and the curse of sin was upon mankind the problem of sin is not only seen in the curse that it brings but the problem of sin is also seen in the conquest I read in the book of John chapter 8 and verse 34 that whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Sin is always on the prowl. Sin is always looking to deepen its hooks into another life sin is trying to take the little child who has a tendency to tell untruth and turn them into a pathological liar sin has uh, is always looking to take someone who might have a bit of a character flaw and rather than allowing them to find the help of god and the help they need he wants to break them through that character flaw until their life is in shambles until they have broken their hearts uh, of the ones who love them most He is, it is always going about seeking whom it may devour. I want you to notice, please, that sin always in conquest, always wanting to conquer, always on the prowl, always reaching for a bit more of your life and a bit more of your home and a bit more of your family. Sin is always there, always trying. It is out to have its conquest is determined against the mind for sin has an evil effect upon the mind. I read in Romans chapter one and verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Sin is how to give every person a mind that is reprobate against God. I notice in its conquest, it wants to leave the mind darkened by sin. Is it possible? Is it possible that even in this beautiful assemblage here tonight in this convention center that there is someone here who at one time had the beautiful light of God shining upon your life and your mind was open to the Word of God and you believed it and you embraced it and you loved it and you lived by it, but now because of your alienation from God and because of your sin you have separated yourself from God and your mind has been darkened by your sin to where this very night uh, you question the authority of the word of God you question whether or not uh, it is the inerrant word of God you question that which you have been taught you question the position of the church you question everything and your mind has been darkened by your sin Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18 having the understanding darkened And there is an inevitable result to having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. But when the devil sets out with his great conquest against the the mind uh, and and sin is marching on, marching forward, ever marching forward, it is also marching to fill the the mind with vain imaginations. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. The conquest of sin. It is a problem. We cannot deny it. Every pastor knows that it's always at the door of his church. It's always there. And hardly a Sunday goes by, but what he doesn't observe something somewhere in someone's life that troubles him because he knows that sin is out to conquer. Maybe it's just a small, almost insignificant change of dress or change of style or change of thought or or change of demeanor but the sensitive pastor picks up on it and he's troubled by it because he knows so well that sin is out to conquer and the conquest of sin is a problem. Not only in its conquering does it set its evil effect upon the mind but sin in its conquering pollutes the emotion. Romans chapter 1 and verse 26 it says that they were given to vile affections. For this cause God gave them up to vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which was against nature. And also without natural affection. Second Timothy chapter three in verse three. For without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, and incontinent. It produces an insensibility. Ephesians chapter four and verse 19 who being past feeling have given themselves over under lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But not only does sin in its attempt to conquer and in its forward march and in its greed as it marches among us and among our families and among our friends to conquer and to take over, it is also endeavoring to enslave enslave and degrade the will. For I quoted a moment ago, that whosoever committeth sin is the servant, is the servant of sin. But not only is there the matter of the curse of sin and the matter of the conquest of sin, and this is enough to break your heart, but there is the problem of sin that is seen in the cruelty of sin. I cannot comprehend for a moment why the holiness message is not loved and embraced by every son and daughter of Adam's race, simply for for no other reason than because of the cruelty of sin. Sin is a hard taskmaster. The Bible speaks truth when it says, the wages of sin is death, and the way of the transgressor is hard. The cruelty of sin can be seen on every hand. It was sin that that evicted the first couple from their Eden estate and sent them weeping in search of shelter. It was sin that caused them to experience pain and hunger, fear and fatigue for the first time. It was sin that caused the first brother, brothers to feud and to fight and to finally have the first funeral. It was sin that drove the murderous Cain to the brink of insanity, crying out, my punishment is more than I can bear. We read those horrible stories and sometimes we read them with a, an attitude that well, that's good enough for him. He shouldn't have done that. I guess it doesn't surprise us too much to find that attitude because that's the attitude that a lot of churches in this day have toward the people they should be winning to the Lord Jesus Christ. We call them worldly outfits and we call them a lot less endearing terms. Yes, sir, they are worldly outfits. And yes, they do have some problems. Uh, I'd be the first to admit it. Uh, But I want to tell you there is a great danger, a great danger in our churches, uh, and that is that we breed a contempt for the people we are called to help. Oh, that God would help us to acknowledge that these people, be whatever term you might call them, they are sons and daughters of Adam's race and they're victims of sin and they're suffering under the cruel blow of sin in its worst. It was the cruelty of sin that summoned the flood and the deluge in Noah's day and taking but all but eight souls to a gurgling grave and then sin in its most horrible stroke of cruelty nailed Christ to the cross of of Calvary and that diabolical act is repeated that every time one who has started to follow Christ turns back and every time one such as you or I who has started to follow our Lord is lured back to sin and lured back to the old way And we cease our praying and we cease our devotional life and we look back to the old way and we begin to finally walk back in the old way again. And it isn't long until we're back there. I read in the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6 that they who fall away crucify unto themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. That is the great stroke of the cruelty of sin. The cruelty of sin is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't really matter. Not only do the poor and the uneducated fall victim to its vices, but the wealthy and the learned also lend their back to its lashes, for it is no respecter of person. A broken home breaks the heart of male and female, of both young and old, for it is no respecter of persons. Can you not almost hear the heinous laugh of sin as it lurks in the corner of the nursery and laughs while some crack baby is crying in its agony and sin doesn't care because sin is cruel. Can you, for just a moment, at least imagine the agonizing pain that drives through the heart of that little mother? who for the first time smells the scent of alcohol on her child's breath when he staggers in some night. Can you imagine, all oh, the hurt and the sorrow of the parents who stand and watch their child be led away through, through metal doors with, uh, uh, with handcuffs and ankle cuffs and led down a dark corridor from which they shall not return for many a year? These are unpleasant scenes and unpleasant thoughts, but I'm here to tell you they speak to us of the cruelty of sin. Sometimes I wonder how I I can be so insensitive to the burden of sin that others bear. And I am begging God in my personal devotion to touch my heart afresh and anew. I'm tired, I'm tired of having a spirit that says, serves them right. They asked for it and they got it. They made their bed, let them lie in it. Oh, that God would purge our hearts from that selfish and cold and careless spirit and help us somehow to recognize that sin is cruel and someone is laboring beneath the blow and their back is bent beneath the lashes of the cruelty of sin. Again I say that probably somewhere in this congregation tonight there are those who are bearing the marks and the scars of sin upon your body. There are some here tonight who are bearing the marks and the scars of sin upon your heart. For sin, sin is cruel in the strictest sense of the word. And then I want to notice that the problem of sin is to be seen in the confusion that it renders. This is a simple gospel message, folks. It's just a simple gospel message. But I think it's important that we hear again that sin renders confusion, be it in the home or the church or wherever it is. God is not the author of confusion, but sin is certainly a matter of confusion and the confusion of sin is also found in the universal question of what shall I do with my sin? There are some who would tell you that what you need to do is to be baptized. Well, I like baptism. I've been baptized and I've baptized others and I think it's a wonderful ordinance of the church But I want to tell you the water won't save you. If the water would save you, Brother Sankey, we wouldn't need singers. Uh, What we would need was be a plumber. And we would have plumbing run on the platform in different places throughout the auditorium and every service we would hook the hose up and we'd save everybody. But that won't save you. But it's confusing for there are some who believe it will. Partaking of the Eucharist or the communion will not save a soul. As wonderful as taking communion is, that will not be the means of your salvation. What shall I do with my sin? Is the question of confusion that reigns. And there are some who deny its existence. Our new age friends tell us that it's just a matter of humanity and that we contain the answer within us and that we can solve our own problem, we just have to get a handle on this. Well, I wanna tell you something. I have a renewed appreciation for Alcoholics Anonymous and let me tell you why. I learned some time ago that when a person with an alcohol problem goes through their program, And if they are successful and they complete the program and they no longer drink alcohol and uh, uh, they're they're doing fine, they are told that it matters not how long they live. If they live a hundred years and never touch alcohol again, that they have to always say I am a recovering alcoholic. At least they admit that's the best they can do for you. But I want to tell you something. There is one that I read about in the blessed old book, and it says, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Thank God. And we do not have to go around saying, I'm a recovering liar, I'm a recovering thief, I'm a recovering whoremonger, I'm a recovering drunk. We can say, I am free by the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, for we are set free and free indeed. But the question is, what shall we do with our sin? Shall we deny its existence? No, indeed. And someone else said, this is what I will do with my sin. I will cover my sin. I will take care of my sin. I will accommodate my desire for this sin in a secret manner. I will not let others know. I will not let my pastor know. I will not let my husband or wife know. I will not let my children know about my sin. I will cover my sin. But I read about you. Did you know you made it in the book? I read about you. It said, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper. And it was talking about you. If you have chosen to cover your sin. Someone else said, this is what I will do with my sin. I will change its name. I don't want to be a drunk. So I'll give it a little respectability. I'm an alcoholic. And instead of disdaining me, now everybody feels sorry for me. I also feel sorry for them. And I'm not being insensitive about the matter, but I'm here to tell you that you only become an alcoholic by the sin of drunkenness. And by changing its name, you will never change its nature. You will say, I don't want to be called a thief. That's a horrible title. It's not very socially palatable. I will be called a kleptomaniac. Now that sounds more sophisticated. But when you stand before the judgment bar of God, you shall still be a thief. Amen. And you do not want to be called a lesbian or a gay, so you, I will be a person of an alternate lifestyle that gives it a little respect. You cannot change your sin by changing its name and you shall stand before almighty God if that be your sin and give an account for that horrible, horrible sin. I hope in this crowd of holiness people that a fellow won't be crucified for preaching against these things. These things are still sin, aren't they? We do take a position against these things, don't we? Have we been silent too long against these social ills of our day? Have we allowed the cancer of sin to begin to eat its way into our ranks because we are afraid to offend somebody by preaching against sin? But this is a confusing matter. They said, I will change their name, but that is no way to handle sin. Someone else says, what will I do with my sin? This is what I will do. He says, I will blame someone else for my sin. That's an old one. Adam and Eve tried that one too. You see, I have this sin because of the family and the environment I grew up in, we tell ourselves. So it's their fault. If they brought you up in a sinful environment, then they shall give an account of whatever their sins might be. But that has nothing to do with this. For the grace of God is available to you on a personal basis. And that cycle and that chain of sin in your family tree must be broken and the grace of God can break it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And all of this renders the confusion of sin. But now I hasten to tell you that there is also a cure for the sin problem. Now just about anybody can tell you what the problem is, but the world is looking for somebody so they can tell me how to fix it. I can't boast of it being original. It's been around a long time. I found it in an old black book my mother kept on the table. And I imagine you have a copy of it too. The Bible is a book of redemption. Thank God. As a matter of fact, redemption is so important in the Bible that it makes everything else look almost out of perspective. Take, for instance, the stars. When the Lord God created the stars, He told us about it with five words, simply saying, He made the stars also. That's all He said. And based upon that, you would think it must not have been very much. But then when we understand that there are one billion stars in our galaxy... And a hundred million other galaxies known in space. And James Jean said that more stars in space than there are grains of sand on the seashore. And think that when God thought of that, he said, and he made the stars also. And that's all he said about it. Five words. But then he told them to build a tabernacle that had in it all the type of redemption And he gave 50 chapters. (laughs) Hallelujah. And then we come to the 89 chapters of the four Gospels. And a third of them deals with the very last week of the life of Jesus. Of his suffering and his death and his resurrection. All because it is a book. It is a book of redemption. We're told about the failures of our father. Our first father, Adam. And we're told about the successes of the second Adam. Hallelujah. For we know the first Adam came and he was placed in a garden. And in that garden he miserably failed. But the second Adam came and he also went to a garden. And in that garden he succeeded. For he prayed, Father, I'll drink the cup. Not my will but thine be done. We are told that the first Adam came and from his side they took a rib and they made him a bride. And then the second Adam came and they pierced his side and with the blood and water that flows forth he's washing himself a bride. Hallelujah. Bless his name. The first Adam came and in that garden he partook of the fruit of the tree and thereby all men must die. But the second Adam came and he became the fruit of the tree and thereby all men may live. Glory to God forever. There is a cure. There is a cure for the sin problem in our day. I'm here to tell you that every church, you might want to do a little analysis in your own mind, but every church must have a point of evangelism somewhere to get this good news out. If the pastor just can't, can't muster up enough religion or energy or whatever to give an altar call once in a while and actually try to get somebody saved, then do it in the Sunday school room. Do it somewhere, but evangelism has to be offered. There must be a point of evangelism in every church where folk who come can discover that there is a cure for their sin problem and where they can be saved and to know that it's not some time before you die, and I hope it all works out well in the end, but it's that today is the day of salvation, and you need to do something about your life now. Amen. Praise God. Some time ago. I was listening to the radio one afternoon, Sunday afternoon, to be exact, and a fellow was preaching. I was intrigued by his preaching. He had announced that he was going to be preaching on sin. And I listened as he preached and he told me how horrible sin was. And I had to agree and beneath my breath I said, yes, that's right, amen, it is horrible. And he told of all the horrible things that sin would do to you. And I had to agree for I had seen them done in the lives of my friends. Yes, that is so sad, but it's true. And then he proceeded to tell me, but you really couldn't do much about it. And he and I started parting ways. To prove his point, he took a little story that some of you have used. He told the story about the little boy that every time he did something bad, he drove a nail in a board. And then when he got it taken care of, uh, he pulled the nail out. He said, now the nail was gone, but the hole was always there. Everybody could always see. You can't get away from those scars. And you can't get away from your sin. And I mauled that over for a little while. Yes, there are scars of sin. I had to acknowledge that. But then as I was hearing him. As he was telling me that sin was there, we couldn't do anything about it. We had to coexist. Let's learn to live with it. Let's learn to cope with it. All of a sudden, I had a thought, and it sort of blessed me. I thought, yes, there was the board of my life, and it was full of holes and scars from my sins. But one day, I met a carpenter. A carpenter from Nazareth, hallelujah. And I gave him the board of my life with all of its scars, and he filled the holes with his grace and forgiveness, and he planed it down good with his grace, and he painted it red with his blood, and now the devil himself doesn't even know where the scars were. Hallelujah! Because I'm not the carpenter who could take the life that was ruined by sin and make the difference and turn it into something that was to God's glory. Hallelujah My dear friend, I want to ask you tonight Have you come to this place with a heavy heart and is your life marred by unforgiven sins? And are you living a life that you hope someday will change and You're hoping and wanting to believe that someday some magic is going to occur But I have to tell you some sad news. If you go on like you are, you'll die with that unfulfilled hope. That magic will never occur. It will never just fall out of the sky one day and all of a sudden your life will be changed. And you will never one day just mature out of your sin. No. But while I've shared the bad news, let me share the good news. There is a plan... And it wasn't my plan. In the plan of creation, God thought of salvation. And the plan is simply this. That somebody like you and somebody like me could bring our load of sin to an altar prayer. And we could confess. Oh, isn't that a strange word? until you start reading the Bible and then the word "confess" isn't so strange anymore. For God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should be baptized, that all should join the church. No, that all should come to repentance. A true and a genuine repentance of your sin is necessary. I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf. I'm talking about a new life. Something that will make the difference. And I'm talking about you. Is it possible that I'm preaching to someone tonight? You're playing the game of life and you're playing quite hard. And at times you think you're doing quite well. But while you're playing the game of life, you're now realizing that you're running toward the wrong goalpost, And it cannot turn out okay. Maybe I'm preaching to someone who is feverishly climbing the ladder. And you're doing everything right to climb the ladder in life. I've come tonight to tell you that without Christ someday you'll get to the top and recognize your ladder is leaning against the wrong wall and there'll be nothing but disappointment and heartache for you then but I believe on this Tuesday night of the IH convention it would be a wonderful place for you to make up your mind and make your decision for Christ and then follow up on that decision and get saved amen and come to a place of repentance and don't come and tell god how wonderful you are remember a rich young man came to the lord and the lord told him what he needed to do to have eternal life and he made his confession but he confessed his goodness he said lord i've done that all my life i'm wonderful fella." And you never get anywhere toward gaining eternal life by confessing your goodness. But when you confess your sin and acknowledge that you are a sinner and that the problem of sin has touched your life too, I'm here to tell you there is hope. There is hope. Some time ago, just a few weeks ago, actually, I was on an airplane, I was seated by the aisle, a vacant seat to my right and then a young lady probably in her mid late twenties or whatever was seated by the window and she was reading a book. And I noticed as we were flying along I I caught a glimpse of the title of her book. And she was reading a book entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And then I noticed that occasionally she was wiping a tear from her eye. And when the time was appropriate, I spoke to her. And I spoke about the book she was reading. And when she discovered that I was a minister, she laid the book down and turned around and began to pour out her soul. She had a lot of troubles. She was an educated young lady, had a wonderful job and profession, but she had a lot of problems. And even as we were flying, she was on her way to visit her younger sister who was dying with cancer. She was going to be at her bedside. And she made a profound statement as I talked to her about the Lord. She didn't recognize it was profound at the moment, I don't think, but it was. She said, I believe in God, but I don't know him. And I know a lot of people who are just like that. You believe in God but you don't really know him. I found out where she was from and I told her that I was going to be in that city in revival meeting in just a couple of weeks. She said, where? I told her. She said, I only live about five minutes from there. May I come? I said, you certainly may. And I'm happy to tell you that the first night she was there, she knelt at the altar and gave her heart to God. I'll tell you that for two reasons. Number one, because maybe there's somebody that you're praying for that you think they're too far away from God. Hold on, keep praying. The problem of sin has touched their lives and it continues to and it troubles you and it troubles them. But keep praying, there's hope. And the second reason I share it with you is because maybe you're here tonight and the confusing aspect of your sin is bothering you. And the devil has told you that maybe others could be saved, but you can't. And he's told you that you could not live the Christian life because it is too disciplined or it is too narrow, or I don't know what he might have told you. And I've come along to partially agree with it you can't within yourself. But I'm telling you tonight that Jesus Christ in you makes you a new creature. In Christ Jesus. And all things pass away. And behold, all things become new. And then suddenly it is no longer you, but Christ that's living through you and in you. And yes, even you can have the problem of sin dealt with in your life. And I'm inviting you tonight, if you would like to, at this IH convention. Brother Sankey, I appreciate you giving me this privilege, this opportunity. And when he talked to me about it, he told me, he said, I want you to preach. And he said, if you want to give an invitation, he said, that's perfectly fine. I thank you. I appreciate it. Because that's exactly what I want to do. I know that probably 99% of you have good old-time religion. But there may be somebody's wayward boy and somebody's rebellious daughter here tonight... Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a landmark like the IH Convention that you could say, that's where I got saved. That's where I got it settled. There where there was hundreds and even thousands of God's children to pray with me. I prayed through and touched the throne. And the sin question was dealt with in my life. I'm just going to give you a happy, wonderful privilege and opportunity to come to Christ tonight. Would you stand with me, please?
0: Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch holiness convention featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855-USA.